In episode number 83 of this podcast, my guest Noah Gannat reminded us that the term data-driven product management originally meant you weren't prioritizing what to build simply based on your own opinions or the opinions of your own colleagues or out of your head, but instead you were using data such as interviews, observations, surveys that came from research, especially with customers. She noted that as our tools have gotten more powerful, our vision has unfortunately gotten narrow to the point where we think of data only as numbers gained from analytics. But being data-driven doesn't mean you have to have analytical numbers to justify every decision. It means you use data to help justify your decisions. And it's to help justify your decisions because there's always a ton of uncertainty. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 86 of The Secrets of Product Management. Thanks for joining me. I truly appreciate you, and I love to hear from you. If you have any thoughts on this episode, please feel free to drop me a line. Now, in case you were wondering, this is the podcast that used to be called All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. It's the same podcast, just with a new name. So today, inspired by that conversation with Noah Gannat in episode number 83, we're drilling down into how to be more data-driven by shaking free of the limits of analytics. So I have some recommendations and I have some warnings. The first thing, and this is really a warning, there's a well-known quote, a phrase you've probably heard, if it can't be measured, it can't be managed. Now this quote, it's often attributed to Peter Drucker, the great management thinker and writer. However, not only is this quote untrue on its face, there's lots of things we must manage without much or any data, and Peter Drucker certainly disavowed it, he actually said something very different. He said, what's measured improves. And this was a warning, it wasn't advice. If you start tracking a metric, the organization will naturally, by a quirk of human nature, which is kind of weird that this happens in a big group like this, the organization will start to try to optimize that metric. Now, if the metric aligns with business improvement, then that's a good goal, right? And that's why tracking revenue is a good idea for a business because revenue generally aligns with the business being more successful, the growth of revenue. But most metrics do not, even metrics that seem obviously valuable on their face. And you're probably familiar with this concept of vanity metrics, like the number of website visits, for example. And it seems like a priori that having the number of websites, website visits go up over time is a desirable outcome. But the fact is that if you start optimizing for that, if the organization starts to pay attention to that number, they're going to start driving more traffic to the website, and that traffic is likely to be less qualified than who you're trying to reach with your website. And so it may actually make the business worse. So there's lots and lots of examples of how these kinds of metrics can backfire. You know, sometimes things can start out great, but there's often a bad result on the way. And a great example of this, there's a great podcast called the Reply All Podcast. And episodes number 127 and 128 of that podcast, and I'll put a link to them in the show notes, which are at secretsofpm.com slash 86. That show is about CompStat, which was the New York City crime tracking app, and that was started in the 80s. It was very successful. It really helped the NYPD track crime, solve crimes, stuff like that. But then, because they started to pay more attention to the statistics than to actually the purpose and the original goal, it got way out of hand and had to be shut down. So it's a, it's a perfect example of the perverse incentives that can be caused when you start to measure things and you start to measure the wrong things. Many technology shops and enterprises have been brought low by measuring the wrong thing. Uh, bug bounties is another obvious tactic 
that usually has bad consequences. And even if the metric doesn't result in perverse incentives, it's easy to measure things that don't matter. That's a lot of the warnings. There's a few more warnings coming, but those are most of the warnings. The fact is that you can measure anything, but you need to think about whether you should actually try to do that. It might not be worth it. And when I say measure anything, you can come up with a numeric value for nearly anything you want. If you have a question where you'd like to get a numeric value, you can often do it, but it might not be worth it. So for some questions, the measurement might cost too much to be cost effective. In other words, if you have a business related question and you could improve the business by getting the answer, well, you may not be able to improve the business enough based on how much it costs to actually get the answer. Or the uncertainty in the answer might be too high to be useful. Maybe your answer, you get a number, but the number is so uncertain, results don't tell you anything. This basic set of concepts about whether it's worth it to make a particular measurement and what about the uncertainty, it's from a really good book called How to Measure Anything by a guy named Douglas Hubbard. Highly recommend it. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. It'll give you new insights into measuring things. So you can measure anything. That is the bottom line. But even if you can, should you? So I told you a couple reasons why you might not want to, but there's other reasons. For one thing, data by itself is often not compelling. You can use it as evidence, and it can be valuable for rationalizing a decision that's made based on other factors, often emotional, if the data is correct. Right. So one of the challenges with measuring a lot of things, you don't even know if the data is quite correct, or at least it's not giving you as accurate an answer as you might need to really make a good decision based on it. You can measure anything. Oftentimes there's a really good question about whether you should or whether there's really some other way that might be more effective to get at the answer to the question you're asking. And so I do want to talk about, instead of being data-driven from the standpoint of measuring metrics and getting numbers, I want to talk a little bit about how to be more kind of a mathy person. This is a segment that I call product management and math. It's the beginning of a long conversation that maybe if you meet me in person, I'm happy to go into in great detail. The basics of how I think we need to be thinking about math as product managers, it's not super mathy, it's mostly arithmetic, but it's very conceptual. I suggest you get very used to thinking conceptually about data. And what do I mean by conceptually? Well, we often don't know the actual numbers that would go into this arithmetic problem that I'm gonna talk about, or that we often are faced with, right? How important is this feature versus this other feature? Well, we probably don't have exact numbers to represent that. Instead, we have, a, we have mental models, and then we can sort of then compare those using sort of mental inequalities or saying, well, if we do this, then it's going to likely end up with this. So the goal is to start using conceptual types of math as opposed to actual numbers since you can't get those. And the types of things that I'm talking about are things like orders of magnitude. For a lot of kinds of decisions in product management, I have a, one rule of thumb that I call the factor of 10 rule of thumb, for example. I don't really want to do a feature. I don't really want to build a feature unless it's going to improve some aspect of my customer's experience by a factor of 10, because usually they're not going to notice anything less than that if I do it. And so it's a lot of effort usually for the customer not knowing that, noticing that it happened. So I don't know if, I don't think I should do it. This order of magnitude rule or factor of 10 rule is also a good rule of thumb for pitching a solution to a customer or for thinking about whether you should build a solution to a problem that a customer has. Typically, to me, the mental model is my solution needs to make the customer's situation at least 10 times better than it was in some dimension. 
And I can talk more about what that means. And I have done in some other podcast episodes. But the point is that if I can't make a factor of 10 improvement, it's probably not worth me doing the work to create a new feature. Another really important concept that's conceptual is kind of relative sizes. And often the ability to compare things that aren't quite the same, but where there's still, it makes some sense to do a comparison between them. I'll come up, I'll give you an example in a minute or two. And then of course, there's the idea of correlation. And that is, okay, what goes down when something else goes up? Or what goes up when something else goes down? Or what two things might go up together? And a great example of this is if the prospect's perception of risk of buying our product goes down, what are some things that are going to go up? Well, maybe we'll be able to close them faster. Maybe we'll make, get a bigger deal out of them. Or maybe we'll win more deals on average when prospects perceive risk to be lower of getting our solution. And so this is a kind of idea of a correlation. Reducing the perception of risk is going to improve other things that are not directly comparable to risk, but that are impacted by risk. So a good example of this, and I've talked about this in a podcast episodes number 306 and 307. So that's secretsofpm.com slash 306 and secretsofpm.com slash 307 if you want to listen to the podcast episodes about the value inequality. The basic idea is that in order to have a successful product, it has to create a lot of value for the customer. And how much value does it have to create? Well, it has to create a lot more than what they pay for it, plus some kind of conceptual things like the risk. What is the risk that the product won't actually do what the customer wants? Now, they are going to be willing to pay more if their perception of the risk that the product will solve their problem is lower. So in other words, if I lower the perception of risk, I can charge more because the customer will perceive that they're getting more value. I also want to think about things like the change cost. How much will it cost to move from the customer's existing solution to our solution, right? That's the change management cost. How much will that cost? If it's lower, then they're more likely to spend more money on my product and so on and so forth. So this is the value and equality. I go into it in great detail. But the point is, I've written it out as a math inequality. So I say that V, the value, is has to be much greater than the sum of the price, the risk, the change management cost, and the opportunity cost. But those things are not real numbers. Those are not real values. Price is a real value, but value is not something that I can really directly measure. I can give some approximations of value. I can't really say what the value of risk is. I can just say that if I make the perception of risk smaller, that enables me to either charge more or for the customer to achieve more value, right? They're not really numbers, but it is kind of a way of being data-driven because it makes me think about all the things that go into having a successful product. So you can think about how to make the price bigger or how to make the value perception bigger on the part of the customer because that's going to help you sell more, right? So what do you do? You can make you can just make the product have more value. You can add features to it that make it more valuable to the customer that solves the problem better. You can reduce the perception of risk and so on and so forth. There's all these things you can think of once you start to think of this in terms of kind of a math equation, even though you can't really do the math equation with real numbers. They're not real numbers. They're conceptual. You can't really measure them analytically, but they are data in a sense. You can get a sense of what the customer's or what prospect's perception is of the risk of buying your product is. You can go ask them. You can do a survey. 
you can get a sense from how hard it is to close them. The salespeople will be very happy to tell you about how risky the, the prospects think the, pros, the product is and things like that. So they're not numbers, but they are data. You can change them over time. You can get a sense of what actions you can take to impact them, like how do you change the perception of risk? Well, maybe you get some good customer stories. That's one way. And there's a lot of other ways. So the other thing that I want to talk about related to data is how you use it and with storytelling. I've done a lot of storytelling episodes recently, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about how data plays into storytelling. Because we've talked about how storytelling is this fundamental thing you do. It's fundamental to persuading, to persuasion, to influence, to helping get people on your side, to help them decide to make the decision in your favor, whether that's buying your product or funding your project, whatever it might be. Or even if you're talking to the developers about getting them to build your thing rather than something else. So what are the things that we know about using data in storytelling? Well, the first thing, the first rule is that data itself usually does not tell a story. Rule number two is that data can support your story very effectively. And I'll give an example of that in a moment. The third rule is something that is a little bit hard for those of us who are really numerate, uh, who really like numbers and understand numbers well. It's a little bit hard for us to understand, but I alluded to it already. An improvement of 10% in something is not very interesting. The most interesting thing you can improve by 10% is sales or revenues, but even that doesn't necessarily make a great story. An improvement of 20% is also not that interesting. A 100% improvement, in other words, doubling something, that is often interesting, and a factor of 10 improvement is super interesting, and that's why I talked about the order of magnitude rule or factor of 10 rule before. And you can think about this, just think about it on a web page. Think about the speed of a web page, the performance of a web page. If the performance of a web page improves by 10%, so it's a page you're used to going to and you keep going to it and, and it's suddenly gotten 10% faster, well, you're probably not even going to notice that change. It will make your life better in aggregate. You go multiple times to that page and you'll feel a little bit better about visiting that site but you're not really gonna notice why you feel better. And you won't even probably notice that you feel better, you just will feel a little bit better. Likewise for an improvement of 20%, that's a little more likely you'll notice, but it'll be fleeting and you won't be able to put your finger on what exactly changed. If the website performance doubles, if it gets twice as fast, you might notice. You might say, oh, things are seeming really snappy today. Now, you won't know whether to attribute that to the website or to your new internet service provider, but a factor of 10 improvement on that website will make it seem like the website is reading your mind. That will be a noticeable change. It will totally change your perception of that website and all other websites that have not had this factor of 10 improvement. I don't know if there's any websites that can achieve that factor of 10 improvement. If there were to be one, you would really notice it. You can sometimes see it on a new phone. You've, if you've had a phone for a few years, you may get a new one and suddenly all the apps are a lot faster. And this is a kind of thing, right? Because over the course of four to five years, the processing power of our phones goes up by approximately a factor of 10. And so sometimes you can see that in action. There's a lot of examples of, of this and a factor of 10 improvement is very interesting and it can almost be a story in itself. So this is a situation where you still wanna wrap the factor of 10 improvement in something, but you can make a story based on a factor of 10 improvement. But the fourth rule, so these are, all the, again, the rules on how to use data to tell your product story. So rule one, data doesn't tell a story. Rule two, you can use the data to support it. Rule three was the factors, how, how important a different 
the different percentage changes are a factor of 10 being very interesting, factor of 10% not being very interesting. Rule number four is that personal wins and unexpected positive outcomes are very interesting, sep completely separate from the data. So let me give you an example of how personal wins and outcomes can really change a story. So this is an example of the data, a story that's primarily trying to be told just with data. So this was a particular feature that someone was wanted to get some funding to improve, and it was a data transfer feature. And basically, this person had to transfer 300,000 rows of data every week from uh, her company to partners, actually several different partners. And there were there was a data standard, but there was a lot of formatting problems, and so there were always mistakes and things like that. And she wanted funding to help fix that. And that was essentially how she pitched it. I've got all these rows of data. Here's how many mistakes I have. Here's how many errors there are every week. Please give me some money to fix this. That's the example of the data without story. It's not that compelling. It sounds like, yeah, that maybe that's worth fixing. I don't, I don't know if that's the most important thing we could do with our money. I asked her some questions about this situation. What is this data all about? Why are we, why are, why do we have to do this? Why do we even, why are we even doing this every week? And she told me what this data meant. So when you put the story in, it gets a lot more interesting. So this was, this data was about people and their life status changes, like they having a baby or getting married. And every week her clients had life status changes. There were about 18,000 of these life status changes every week. And every change needed to be communicated to all the partners. And she had to send all of her data about all of her people to just keep everything in sync. So it wasn't just the people that got changed, but it was all the people. A mistake in this data transfer means something like maybe a baby can't get a doctor visit because their health insurance provider doesn't know they had a baby. Or maybe a husband can't get his new wife on his health plan. That's the type of thing that can go wrong when this data isn't transferred. So we make 300,000 changes of these types of changes per week. There's formatting problems and mistakes. Please help us fix this. Well, suddenly, that's a story that sounds like it's probably worth solving, probably worth throwing some money at because we don't want those people to be without the ability to go to the doctor. We don't want babies to not get their shots, things like that. So that's an example of the data is the same, but the story around the data suddenly makes it seem much more interesting and much more compelling. The summary of storytelling and data is that there has to be a story to explain what you're seeing or the numbers that you're showing. That's what makes it really compelling. Often the search for the data itself is also driven by a story, and that's often something you can tell. Why are we going, why are we looking for this data? What is our hypothesis? What did we see? What did we see as a big picture? We have a lot of customers who are really unsatisfied, so we started to drill down into why they were unsatisfied. Now that data may be measurements that we make with analytics, or maybe we go out and talk to them. We may do interviews. We may do a survey, something like that. Remember, the data is not just necessarily numbers. Our customer stories are data. Our customer stories are data that are really valuable in that whole thing, what I was talking about, the value inequality and reducing the perception of risk. The way we lower the perception of risk is by having good customer stories. A few additional concepts in closing. So I didn't talk at all about statistics, which is a rabbit hole which I would love to go down. Things like distributions, and the meaning of statistical significance and stuff like that. Bottom line, if you're not a statistician, be really careful about using statistics on the types of data that we deal with where there's a huge amount of uncertainty and where we're typically not dealing with what are called normal distributions, standard distributions of the bell curve, because 
the types of distributions that our data comes in, the normal intu intuitive ways we do statistics in our head do not work. I'm not talking at all in this episode about analytical prioritization. It's a topic of a whole podcast. It's really using sort of a conceptual math approach to doing prioritization based on your strategic goals, the organization's strategic goals, the strategic goals for the product. It uses conceptual math, as I say. I do talk about it at length in episode 317, secretsofpm.com slash 317. I guess the bottom line is this conceptual math is really more powerful than specific numbers, particularly because we often don't have the specific numbers. Or if we do, they're highly uncertain. A lot of times the numbers that we have are not really comparable, but we still need to kind of think of them as creating an equation in a sense. And for con conceptual math is also really good at getting a picture across without going into great detail because you're doing it on a conceptual level. So here's three things you can start doing today to take put some of these ideas into action. So data-driven in particular doesn't mean analytical numbers only. Our error bars, our uncertainty is always pretty high. Our sources of data are often messy like conversations with human beings. So that's the first thing, not analytical numbers only. You don't have to have a number to be data-driven. Second thing, internalize Peter Drucker's warning, what's measured improves. Treat any proposed measurement with appropriate caution and at least try to think through the potential unintended consequences and what could go wrong. And there's tons of examples of this out on the internet. You just can probably search for things and see how different companies or different organizations put metrics into place and had big failures based on those metrics. And again, I'd recommend the Reply All podcast episodes that I mentioned earlier. I'll put links to all that in the show notes. And then finally, number three, get familiar with conceptual math as I presented it. How things correlate positively and negatively, orders of magnitude. One, an, another thing that's important conceptually, what significance means to human beings, not statisticians, right? So risk is a really significant thing to our prospects. And so how do you kind of tie that into your analytics. It's really hard to get analytics on risk perception of risk. But if you think about it as a concept, you can start to say, oh, it may be at a certain point right now, is there things I can do to reduce it? And that's a really useful thing and a really useful way to be data-driven is to say, I am certain there is a perception of risk. Now I have to find out how I might reduce that. Then you go and do some research to find out what things reduce risk for your prospects, and you start to do those things. And that's a way to be data-driven. So that's just an example. So that's a quick introduction to what it means to be data-driven without being super analytical. Primarily, you want to be very conceptual in math. I think that's the powerful thing, the powerful tool to use. And you really have to be careful about what you measure because it can things can go off the rails pretty quick because of uncertainty, because of Peter Drucker's maxim, all that kind of stuff. I'd love to hear your feedback on this show. I'd love to hear if any of this advice is useful or if you start to put it into use or if you have any questions for me about how to make use of these ideas. Feel free to reach out to me. You can reach out to me via the comments on the show page, which are at secretsofpm.com slash 86. You can reach out to me just by sending me an email, nils at nilsdavis.com, or there's lots of other ways. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Nils Davis on LinkedIn. Love to chat with you there. Feel free to connect. Mention that you heard me on the podcast. And if you have any questions, you can just ask me right there as well. There's a lot of other information on the show page with all the notes and all the links that I mentioned. And until next episode, 
This is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.